Okay, so and for Fuhr Shlema of Chaya Batchana, Tehila Malka Batchaya, and Menachem Mendel Ben Sora Batya, and nightly co-sponsors, Yael Fricha, for the Fuhr Shlema of Aviva Bat Lona. Have a seat, have a seat. Send them away. Send them away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, welcome. A lot of new people here. So, Baruch Hashem. Just uh, share with you a little bit of how this works here. Basically, these classes are built on a mimer, a Hasidic teaching of the Rebbe of Blessed Memory. And what we do is we start with a practical modern-day issue. From there, we'll jump into the mimer, and then from there, we'll come back and wrap up the... Uh so, today's title is, When Religion Doesn't Make Sense. So, modern-day issue... Sorry? No, is there, are they going to turn off the music? Eventually. So Someone will remember. <laughs> you you want to go ask, ask them, Sure, 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 sure. Thank can you. Right yeah. Right yeah. Oh, okay. There you oh, go. See Magic. You thought of it, and it happened. See? Baruch Hashem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just have to make a small Kaylee. Okay, so uh, the modern day issue today is mind and faith. Judaism has a very interesting, almost impossible concept of faith. Because Maimonides, for example, when he lists the first of the uh, 613 commandments based on the first of the Ten Commandments, he doesn't say, I am God, your God, is a commandment to believe in God. Rather, he says, it's a commandment to know God. Huge difference. Knowing and believing. So much so that there are many codifiers who say there cannot be such a thing as a mitzvah to believe in God. Why so? Because you can't have a commandment without a commander. Thus, how can you have a commandment to have faith in God? That's a prerequisite to any of the commandments. If you don't believe in God, then how can you have a commandment from who? So therefore, they count the opening mitzvah, the first mitzvah, is not about believing in God. That's a prerequisite. The commandment is to know God. A total different commandment. Now that's, a, that's an issue. Because knowing God, rather than believing in God, is a total different relationship. Knowing God means I can wrap my head around it. So number one, we have three major issues we're going to just put on the table quickly. Number one, knowing is not believing. How do we believe in God? What does that mean just to know God? Number two, a God that I know cannot be my God. To be my God, you have to be beyond my capacity. If I can know you, then I'm within the ballpark of you. Then I can't, you can't be my God. So we have over here a bunch of issues. And uh, thirdly, obviously a very simple question, how can the finite human mind ever know the infinite God? And nevertheless, what does Hashem say? The commandment is to know God. Da et Hashem elokecha. Know God, you God. And why so? Let's first talk about why God wants us to know Him. If we don't know God, and our only relationship with God is obedience, that means the only part of me that could have a relationship with God is my lower faculties. 
You command, I do. But for me to have a relationship with God, which encompasses my higher faculties, i.e. my intellects, and also my emotions, human emotions, not just the fatuity, but true love built on knowledge, not just a fool's fear, but true awe built on knowledge. If I can't have that, then I don't have a relationship with God. God only encircles me by me doing with obedience what He has commanded me to do. But there is no higher faculty relationship. So for me to have a relationship in which God is saying, I want your mind and heart and your thought, speech, and action, means that there has to be somehow that my mind can have a relationship with God, which is knowledge, and somehow that my heart can have a relationship with God, which is true feelings. And I've shared with you many times on this platform, you tell me you love God and you can't write a 10-page essay who God is, you don't love God. And if you can tell me you have fear, you have fear of God, but you don't know who God is, that's not fear, that's a fool's fear. That's like you're afraid of the dark. Turn on the light, you'll see there's no reason to be afraid. So therefore, in order to have a deep relationship in which it's real, in the mind and heart of the human, God has commanded us to know God and that our feelings should be the offspring of that knowing God. So we're going to have to understand how is that possible. What is the relationship between knowing and believing? Okay? This week's class is, as I shared, it's based on a mimer that the Rebbe delivered in 1965. And it's all about the mystical concepts of what happened right after the Ten Commandments. At the end of this week's Torah portion, we're told in short that the people stood from far and Moses went into the Arafel. And we're going to see what Arafel means. Simply speaking, Arafel means the thickness of the cloud. It means opaque darkness. Okay? So to understand what exactly is going on here. What does it mean Moses entered into the cloud in order to learn Torah with God, to learn to know God, and to be able to receive the Torah and the Ten Commandments? Okay? The two tablets. Okay, with that being said, let's talk about the Arafel. What is the definition of Arafel? So in explaining what Arafel is, Rashi, because it says, the Moshe came, he neared to the Arafel, and it says, Asher Elohim Sham, which God was there. God was in the Arafel. So what's Arafel? So if you look, Rashi actually has an interesting um, interpretation based on the recounting that Moshe does. Moshe recaps in Deuteronomy, so he talks about this experience as well. So Rashi says like this, within three partitions, darkness, cloud, opaque darkness, as it is said, and the mountain was burning with fire unto the heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and opaque darkness. So now we understand that there's three different partitions that Moses had to go through. And then we talk about what is the specific one, Arafel. Opaque darkness is synonymous with the thickness of the cloud concerning which he, God, had said to him, Moses, behold, I am coming to you in the thickness of the cloud. And thus the question is, why is Hashem coming to Moses in darkness? Why is he coming to him in opaque darkness? Wouldn't you expect Hashem to come in light? Don't we refer to darkness as the absence of God's revelation and presence? 
So why is it that God is specifically coming to Moses in opaque darkness, in the thickness of the cloud? Okay? So, just turn to your handout for a moment. We didn't make enough copies this week, did we? Okay, but uh, I want to just read to you, just briefly, we're going off topic, but I just want to have a clarity before we go into the mystical concepts. So, here is what happens. At the end of the next week's Torah portion, we have a clear description of Moses ascending to heaven. How exactly did it take place? So I'm going to read to you what the verses say and what Rashi says. So Moshe and Yeshua, his servant, arose, and Moshe ascended to the mount of God, and to the elders he said, Wait for us here until we return to you, and here Aaron and Hur, who was his nephew, are with you. Whoever has a case, let him go to them. And Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Hashem rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. For six days Moshe Benu could not enter. And he called to Moshe on the seventh day from within the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of Hashem was like a consuming fire atop the mountain before the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses came within the cloud, and he went up to the mountain, and Moses was upon the mountain forty days and forty nights. Okay, some opinions say that he was actually the first six days of the 40 days. It's a question when these six days are. He was just waiting for God to open up a pathway. So now let's see Rashi. Rashi brings two opinions. I'm only going to quote one of them. Others say that the cloud covered Moses for six days after the Ten Commandments were given. And they, these six days, were at the beginning of the 40 days that Moses ascended to receive the tablets. The cloud was a kind of smoke, and the Holy One, blessed is He, made a path. Another version is not a path, but a chuppah, a canopy within it. So obviously, just by reading these verses, before we get into any Kabbalah, you're obviously talking about something mystical. Moses couldn't enter the cloud. He had to wait till Hashem opened up a pathway for him, or a chuppah. In other, there's another mystical teaching in which the Rebbe talk, also talks about the concept of why did the rainbow, why was it placed in the cloud as well. We find the cloud often, and the cloud was upon the tabernacle, and Moses couldn't end, enter it. Um, we find that a lot. It seems to be that in the thick of the cloud, it's not just a thick of the cloud, it was so thick he couldn't enter it. No, but there is some presence there in which Moshe Rabbeinu could not enter until a pathway was opened up. So we want to know why the cloud? What's going on here with the cloud? Why would Hashem not reveal Himself in light? That's normally in Kabbalah what we talk about. God's presence is defined by light. Okay? Okay, let's, le let's have the lecture begin. So I'm going to give you a list of what the Kabbalistic, Hasidic concept that we're going to talk about tonight is. And then we'll get back to this question of how we as people today practically kind of make a marriage between knowing and believing okay so the concepts for today is two opinions on the three partitions two opinions on the name elohim the three advancements of the torah that took place at mount sinai and the ten commandments okay that's what we're going to talk about tonight so let's the amazement of Hasidus begin so i spoke to you before that rashi talks about three different partitions right you have the Choshech, you have the Anan, and you have the Arafel. You have darkness, you have cloud, and you have opaque darkness, which is also the thickness of the cloud. What do these represent? 
So in Kabbalah you have two paradoxical opinions on what they represent. There was a famous man, his name is Rab Naftali Hertz ben Yaakov Elchanan, who wrote a famous Kabbalah book which is quoted very often in the teachings of Chabad as an authority on the teachings and the, and the opinion of the Arizal. And he says as follows, Eimek HaMelech, it's called the Valley of the King, and he writes as follows. He says that the Arafel, the thicket of the cloud, is the lowest of the three worlds. Okay? Parentheses just going to quickly go through this. We've gone through it many times over here before. So we talk about in Kabbalah that there is the chain, the evolution chain from the infinite to the finite, right? The infinite God, the finite universe, and somehow there is a life sustenance that's sustainable and we can absorb it from the infinite to the finite. And that's because there's an evolution change which has to do with the contraction, concealment. The more the light contracts, the more the vessels get thick, and slowly but surely we have a ray of a ray of a ray, and finally, you know, pretty much just the way the water system works, right? So you have Niagara Falls, it's a huge big thing, and that gives off, let's say, for example, electric, and that gets broken into a smaller, into a smaller, until you can plug something in. The same thing with the water. The water goes through different canals, getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the same goes on with everything. When you're going to contract it from, you try to take a drink from a fire hydrant, then it's not going to work well. So you've got to go ahead and bring it down. So too over here. So in Kabbalah, we talk about realms, faces, emanations, and then we talk about worlds. Now just for you to know, the word for world in Hebrew is what? Olam. olam. The word olam in Kabbalah comes from the word helem. For a world to exist, there has to be a concealment of the light. So when we talk about the three worlds, we're talking about the last stage of, of creation. Those three stages are called Bria, Yetzirah, Asiya, which means creation, formation, three-dimensional action. Just that you can have a, a clarity of this. Ex nihilo, creating something out of nothing, is only the concept of creating mass. That's what exists in the world of Bria, just mass. So on one hand, the fact that it is a something is already a separation from just being an extension to God. But the fact that it's the simple mass without any de definitive form means that it's not that arrogant. The next world, is already where not only do we have a something, but the something has a very definitive description. It's formation. And then the lowest world, our world, the physical world, is called Asiya, the world of action. He says that Arafel is this world. So now we understand that the three levels of darkness, cloud, and Opaque darkness is creation, formation, and action. What does that mean practically? Let's be logical about this. What it means is that God is descending down here to give Moshe the Torah. Thus he learns that Hashem descended from the upper spheres into the darkness, world of creation, into the cloud, world of formation, into the physical, opaque darkness, which is the world of action, our world. That's how he is going to learn pshat. Comes along the Tzemach Tzedek, 
the third Lubavitch Rebbe, and he brings a proof from the Talmud in Chagiga based on a verse in chapter 18 of Tehillim. Let me read to you what the verse means in English. He made darkness his hiding place about him as his booth, the darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky. Now in Kabbalah what we're saying here is that light, no matter how you're going to slice it or dice it as the greatest light, light by definition is revelation. Revelation demands description. And thus, it cannot be the ultimate presence because the ultimate presence is the essence. The essence defies revelation. To have a revelation, there has to be a what do I see? The minute you ask the word what, it's not essence. It's a something. Thus, the ultimate presence of the essence is actually not defined by light but by darkness. Thus we have two darknesses. We have the darkness which is pre-light and then we have the darkness which is concealment. Thus you're going to find in Kabbalah two extremes. On one hand we say that this physical world is the lowest the darkest of all worlds. On the other hand, freedom of choice and the power to be or not to be is only in this world. What you can accomplish in this world in one heartbeat of teshuva because of freedom of choice, because the essence exists here, you don't have in all the spiritual worlds. Thus our sages tell us better one moment of teshuva and good deeds in this world in which you're connecting to the essence of God than all the divine bliss of paradise. Because bliss is perception. Perception, my mind works through, everyone's mind works through divide and conquer. In other words, we're constantly defining, 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 subcategory, subcategory. That's only possible with light. When you're talking about the essence of Hashem, how can you subdivide essence? How can you define essence? How can you categorize the different elements of essence? Essence, by definition, doesn't have different categories. It's simplicity, to be or not to be. Not what. Thus we have over here two different opinions. The first opinion of the Eimek HaMelech is saying, that Hashem descended into the lowest world to give us the Torah. The second opinion is saying that Moses entered into the highest realm in order to receive the essence of Torah. So they're both talking about lower and higher meeting. But the first shot is that it's coming down. Hashem is coming down to the lowest realm for Moshe to receive it. The second opinion is that God opened up a pathway for Moshe into the highest realm. To be a little bit more specific, another way that Kabbalah is looking at it is, is that when we talk about darkness, we're referring to the supernal crown. The supernal crown is the highest level. We're calling it darkness because in the face of essence, everything is dark. We spoke about this once before. From God's perspective, spirituality is no closer than physical. 
From God's perspective, God is everything and everything is God. So why is physical less God than spiritual? And why is spiritual more God? So from that perspective, what we're talking about is that the minute you, you're talking about the essence, everything is dark. Now, according to that, what are the three heads? If we're talking according to the second opinion in which the three partitions are higher than high, so what are we talking about? We're talking about supernal crown, wisdom, and understanding. The world was created in seven days from the seven emotions, and the primordial is the three heads, which is counted as supernal crown, wisdom, and understanding. Now, just for the tech stuff, and then we're going to start with the techie stuff. Just for the tech stuff, Moshe Rabbeinu represents the third of the emotions, which is Tiferet, which is truth, which is Torah. So, Kabbalistically speaking, Moses entered into the Arafel, which is understanding. Why understanding? Because there's a rule that the ancient days, Atik Yoimim, the, the highest level of the supernal crown, manifests itself and reveals itself in understanding. Thus there was that connection between Moses and the highest of high. So now we have here two total opposite opinions. One saying that the three partitions and then the lowest of them, which is the, the Arafel, which is the opaque darkness represents coming all the way down as low as you could, which is the world of action. Hashem's coming down here to give us the Torah physically. While on the other hand, we're having the other opinion, which is that Hashem opened up a pathway into the highest of the high for Moshe Rabbeinu to be able to go up and receive the ultimate. Okay? So far, so good, people? Okay. You'll forgive me with this flu. <laughs> but now we're going to have an identical argument. What was the last word? To, sorry? I usually run a monologue until the end, but if it's a question that stops you from understanding further, fine. But if it's not, then let's wait till the end. Okay. Uh, so there's a part when um, the Jews were in the desert for 40, 40, 40 years. And no, no, no. 40 years. Desert was 40 years. Yeah. And then um, and there's one pasuk that says, And so wouldn't it be Bafel? Because then he's coming to our... That's a question we're going to put on hold. Okay. <laughs> no, I appreciate the question, but that's a, a little side detail. But a good question. And the same question applies to what was on the tabernacle. Does it say Arafel or Anan? Or stuff like that. Okay. The exact same two opinions that we have here, paradoxical opinions, the highest or the lowest, is going to exist in the second half of the verse. What's the second half of the verse I told you? Asham ha Elohim. The Arafel, which there was the Elohim. Question. Elohim is not the highest name of God. Elohim actually is considered the shield. Just like the sun is within its shield, so too the ineffable tetragrammaton is within Elohim. Eho Elohim is numerical value of 86. The word for Elohim is the, the, well, 
Elohim is the numerical value of 86. Hateva, the nature, is the numerical value of, of uh, 86. And the reason is because the entire notion of Elohim is the way Hashem manifests itself into plurality, into finite, absorbable. Thus, you're going to have an unbelievable concept. I remember my uh, I'm very proud daddy, but my oldest son, when he was in first grade, and he was learning prefix suffix, he asked his teacher, how can God have a name Elohim if Yud Mem is suffix masculine plural? How can you use plural for God? But the answer is that that's specifically the way it is. Because if you look at the menorah, the one infinite turns into seven, so too, that's the job of Elohim. Elohim is what the infinite shines through, so it should have finite expression so that we can absorb it. Okay? So the question here is, why is the verse using the name Elohim? The beauty of, of giving the Torah was that now we have the ineffable tetragrammaton. We have the four letter name of God, which is the ultimate name of God. Thus the question is, why Elohim? The answer is going to be exactly the same two opinions. On one level, we're talking about Elohim is the shield which covers. Thus the ultimate experience of Elohim is down here, where we can actually walk around entertaining the thought of atheism. That's how covering Elohim is upon the ineffable tetragrammaton. So on one hand, Elohim is the lowest Concealment. On the other hand, Elohim once again is going to talk about the Yoshes Choshech Sisroi, the darkness, the concealment that's not less than, but more than any descriptive definition. The exact same way that we had two opinions in what the opaque darkness was. The exact same thing is the two opinions of what Elohim represents. Okay? Okay. Now, to understand this, we're going to take a step back. Moshe Rabbeinu going up on the mountain to enter into the thick of the cloud, the opaque darkness, happened when? Right after God orally gave us the Ten Commandments. Right? And then God tells Moses to come up. So let's step back a moment and see what happened before this whole going into the cloud. And the question is, why did God give us the Torah? Now, to really clarify that question, Avram Avinu, already through divine inspiration, knew of the Torah. Avram Avinu kept the 613 commandments. Avram Avinu were taught, went to yeshiva to learn by Noah. Yitzchak went to learn by Shem. Yaakov on his way to his future father-in-law made a 14-year pit stop in the yeshiva of Shem and Aver. The Gemara in Kedushin, and you actually say it on Simchas Torah. On Simchas Torah, if you read what you read, if you pay attention to what you're reading there, Avram somach besimchas Torah, Yitzchak somach besimchas Torah, Yaakov somach besimchas Torah. Avram Avinu, through divine inspiration, received what the mitzvot would be. 
By the way, totally off topic, but just for you to appreciate how much this is so. So we're actually taught that Avram Avinu had a question because the Gemara has an argument who's the few first Jew. Some say Avram's only the first Jew spiritually, but he cannot be considered the first Jew because the first Jew was the mass conversion at Mount Sinai. The other opinion says, no, Avram Avinu was the first Jew. What's the big difference here? The big difference is that if Avram Avinu is a Jew, he has to keep Shabbos. If he's not a Jew, he's not allowed to keep Shabbos. When someone converts, we tell them, as they're preparing themselves, we tell them every single Shabbat, quietly when no one's looking, go into the bathroom, open and shut the switch. The first complete Shabbos you're allowed to keep is when you're a Jew. Thus, this argument left Avram in a checkmate. Do I or don't I keep Shabbat? So there's an unbelievable opinion that says that Avram Avinu wore tzitzit. Why? Because if he's a Jew, then tzitzit is considered a garment. If he's not a Jew, he didn't want to wear that. So he's carrying. So he covered both bases. You see how technical it is. Not only that, but if you look about the angels when they came to Avram and then later when they went to Sodom, it says he made a matzot. And we know that it was Passover. So once again, just sharing with you that they knew of the Torah. So Avram taught it to Yitzchak, Yitzchak taught it to Yaakov, Yaakov taught it to his 12 sons. And in Egypt for 210 years, the tribe of Levi were the guardians of this knowledge and they were the observers. So why all of a sudden does Hashem pull off a whole Steven Spielberg scene of giving the Torah something that we already had, we already knew? That's the question of what changed. And the answer to that is three advancements took place by Hashem giving the Torah and not just allowing it to go through Avram from generation to generation. Let's go over the three. Number one. In the times of Abraham, Abraham received it through divine inspiration because his source of his soul was very high. It was in a place which is called the candle of God, which is ebb and flow, just like the flame. So because he was able to experience that ebb and flow, thus he was given the commandments of ebb and flow. 248 thou shall is ebb, 365 prohibitions flow. So he earned it through having a soul of such great source. Thus he was able to refine himself. Thus he was able to earn this chut to receive the Torah. However, the rest of us aren't there. So only because Hashem gave that, came down and gave it to us, it now is possible for every Jew, regardless of what level of source of soul he or she has, should be able to have the Torah. So the first thing that happened, the first advancement was that the Torah now became available to everyone. It was no more that certain special spiritual souls, Adam, Noah, or whatever it was. No, now Hashem gave it that every single Jew has the Torah as an acquisition, as a gift, and as an inheritance. Regardless of whether my soul is from a high place or not a high place, the Torah is mine. By the way, just stepping off the topic for a moment, what does the word Yisrael stand for? 
Israel stands for Yesh Shishim Ribui Otiot Litorah. There are 600,000 letters to the Torah, which happens to be not true. It's 300,000, but there's a different way to count it. The crowns are different parts of the letters. But that acronym just tells us that every Jew has a piece of the Torah. It's in our name, Yisrael. We all have the ot of the Torah, which is ours, regardless of whether I'm an unbelievable high soul or an unbelievable low soul. So the first thing that happened that didn't happen prior was that Hashem gave it and made it possible for each and every one of us because He brought it down here. You don't have to climb up to heaven no more. Hashem brought it to us in the physical. Thus we can all do it. The second thing that happened was that when Avram Avinu did mitzvot, he only did it spiritually. The reason why Avram Avinu made his servant place his hand on his circumcision, which is very not modest, he said, I want you to take an oath that you're going to find a wife for my son Isaac, right? He said, put your hand on my circumcision. That's not proper. And the answer is because when you make an oath to God, you have to do it on an object of a mitzvah. The only physical object of a mitzvah that Avram Avinu had was a circumcision. Everything else was spiritual. An example. Putting on tefillin has a spiritual dimension. Your head box has four because you have wisdom, understanding, knowledge as it breaks into two emotions, love and, and fear. And then you have the handpiece. Mystically speaking, when you put on tefillin on a spiritual level, you're bringing down the greater divinity of the higher intellects into the lower emotions. That's what it means Kabbalistically. They did it spiritually. It says clearly, Jacob, when he was doing his DNA stuff with his sheep, with peeling the bark of the... It says, Kabbalistically, what he did was equivalent to putting on tefillin. But that was it. We today have a physical period tefillin, which has whole laws. You have to bury them if they're not good, you can't just throw them out. If they fall, God forbid, you give charity, you fast, there's laws. The laws that talk about the holiness of the physical tefillin. Our forefathers couldn't do that. Because until God himself came down on Mount Sinai and told Moses, come up Mount Sinai, heaven and earth were separated. Only once Moses received the Torah, Hashem came down and gave him a physical two sets of ta two tablets. And all of a sudden there's physical. All of a sudden we can do mitzvot physically. All of a sudden there's a practical part of the mitzvah. The practical part of the mitzvah is not the spiritual union, but do I dedicate my mind and my heart down to my action to God. So the second advancement in Torah was that all of a sudden it manifests itself physically. And that's why our forefathers were all shepherds. Because they didn't want to have physical engagement because that was an interference to their spirituality. So let me just take out the flock, build a fence, and just spend uh, 30 days there while they're pasteurizing and I'll be meditating and praying and then singing. Because serving God was spiritually then. The mitzvot were spiritual. They were all through meditative unions. Not so with us. With us, if you're to meditate about tefillin, 
or meditate about the amazing power of lighting a Shabbos candle, but you didn't take a physical match and strike it and light the candle, you didn't do the mitzvah. Thus, the second advancement in Torah was that it descended all the way down here into this physical world. That didn't happen before Mount Sinai. And then there's a third thing, which is the exact other polar extreme. What did Hashem tell Moses? Ve'eda and I appeared El Avram Yitzchak Yaakov Bekel Shakai with the name Kel and Shakai. Obviously, I'm mispronouncing them. But my ineffable tetragrammaton, I didn't reveal to them. Which, of course, Kabbalah says, how can you say that, God? If you look by the circumcision, it actually doesn't say, and Elohim spoke, or Kale spoke, it says ineffable tetragrammaton. And the answer is that it only says ineffable tetragrammaton as it is in the shield of Elohim. Thus, the spirituality that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were able to connect with and draw by doing Torah mitzvot was not the ineffable tetragrammaton. It was only the way already it went through a contraction in order to manifest itself into the lower levels. What is the first words of the first commandment? Anochi, I, essence. Ineffable tetragrammaton. Elokecha, the word Elokim. So, if you look at it now, we have two polar opposites. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob couldn't bring it all the way down because they didn't connect to all the way up. Only when we were given the Torah and we were given the all the way up, thus we're able to bring it all the way down. Now let's put all three together. So it's within the capacity of every single, each and every one of us to be able to do Torah mitzvot because it's physically and through that we're connecting with the essence of God. Thus again our sages tell us better one good deed in this world nicer, better than all of the bliss in paradise. Because over there you're having Revelations, names, light. Over here you're having, when I do a physical mitzvah, I've connected with the essence of God. I want to take it in another dimension. You see, in Torah mitzvot, there's the logical. But in Torah mitzvot, there's also the illogical. Why so? Because ultimately speaking, the Torah is the essence will, the infinite will of God. The infinite will of God does not always manifest itself within the intellect. So much so that our sages tell us that which we understand is the lower part. The mitzvahs that we don't understand is because the will did not manifest itself lower. Thus, you can understand something which is amazing. Moshe Rabbeinu questioned, we say it in our Machser, on Yom Kippur, when we talk about the Ten Martyrs, how Rabbi Akiva, the greatest of the greatest, when he was being tortured to death, and they shouted out to God, this is your Torah, this is your reward? How can you do this? What did Hashem answer? You remember what Hashem answered? 
Shtoik, silence. Kach so it has arisen in my will. And if I hear one more word, I'm going to return the whole world back to water the way it was before the six days of creation. Well, what's going on here? Hashem's having a bad hair day. He's snapping at us. What are you doing, Hashem? You made a promise. You gave us a promise. You promised that if we walk in your ways and we study Torah diligently, we're going to be good. And what are you doing to the one man? The man who, who offspring of a convert, according to some opinion, himself is a convert. And he started his career at the age of 40, gave everything up, studying Torah, became the greatest of the greatest. And that's what you're doing? You're torturing him to death like that? And Hashem answers, Shtoik! Silence! Kach I hate talking about this topic because it's nothing to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. You know, Chabad has a very different approach to the Holocaust, the, the Shoah, than anyone else. When the previous Rebbe was complaining about what was going on, and the other person said, yeah, but you know they were assimilating, the previous Rebbe gave that other rabbi a sharp look and said, God doesn't need no lawyers. We're not here to answer why God did it. But there's an interesting, interesting insight that the Rebbe compares it to what happened with Rabbi Kiva. Why did Hashem say, Shtoik, silence. He told the angels, you're trying to understand with logic that which comes from an illogical place. Shtoik, silence. He didn't say quiet, I understand why I'm doing it. No. Kach Allah birtsoni. This is in my infinite will. How can you expect to be able to understand in your finite intellectual minds not what I'm thinking. This isn't even in the realm of intellect. Ritzoni. It is my will. Will defies understanding. True will. True will. That ultimate I want. That ultimate I want can't be explained. Because if it could be explained, then it's not I want. I have a reason for it. No, that's not I want. I want means I have no reason. Why? I want. Thus, ultimately speaking, when we do the mitzvot, we're not saying that Hashem has a master plan and He's got to figure it out and He's got it all figured out and I'm doing what is right. No. At the simplest, truest level, why am I doing this? Hashem wants. Yeah, but what's the reason? Hashem wants. Thus, if we're now going to take it this way, let's talk about those three advancements again. Each and every one of us physically can connect and draw to the ultimate essence, the illogical, the transrational, the infinite will. Right? In other words, what are we really saying here? We're saying that it's within the capacity of each and every one of us to bring into the lower, the physical, the lowest, that which is the highest. Let me say that sentence one more time. 
we can bring into our inferior finite intellect the superior infinite will. Thus the two Elohims and the two definitions of Arafel actually walk hand in hand. The highest and the lowest. That's what the Torah is all about. Give your ultimate essence, give your infinite will to the physical human beings who are going to do it. Thus we now understand why he used the word Elohim. Because he's talking about that which is above and beyond the light of the ineffable tetragrammaton. And he's also talking about the lowest place of concealment. The place where the human being can choose to say no to God, can choose not to believe in God, and that physical human being simply does what he does because God said he wants him to do that. Thus you have the highest and the lowest becoming one. So far so good? Tapish? Okay. So ultimately speaking, where we came to now was that Elohim, Elohim, right? The highest, the lowest. Arafel, the highest, Arafel, the lowest, right? What we're now understanding is, let's define the highest as faith, the lowest as knowing. And God has made it within the capacity of each and every one of us by giving us the Torah that we can bring the faith into the knowing. Okay? Okay, I want to go a little offline here and talk about this on a practical level. Practical level, there's the written Torah and there's the oral Torah, right? You have the 24 books and then you have all the oral tradition. Now, there's something interesting. When you on Shabbat get called up to the Torah, did the rabbi ask you, do you understand Hebrew before I call you up? You're about to make a blessing. You can't make a blessing if you don't know what you're doing. You make a blessing on food, not because you have food, but because you eat food. You make a blessing on Torah, not because you have the Torah, because you know you, you're going to understand the Torah. Do you understand this? Most people will tell me no. The difference is that the Shloh HaKadosh, very great Kabbalist, he says that all of the Torah, the written Torah, is Shemot. They're all names of God. Your name is Phyllis. I don't need to know what Phyllis means in order to call you Phyllis. And you'll turn around when I call you Phyllis, whether I understand the etymology of Phyllis or not. So too it is that every Jew can immediately make a blessing on the written law. Because all he's hearing is names of God. On, on the highest level, these are the names of God. And by studying Torah, reading the Torah, you're calling God. So it makes no difference <coughs> Excuse me, whether you understand or not. Okay? What's about the oral law? The oral law is that you cannot make a blessing unless you understand. Thus you have on one hand the infinite, the written law, and on the other hand the, the finite, the, the, well I shouldn't call it finite, but at least we're going to understand it with our finite minds. So what happens here? Let's talk about these two levels of Elohim, these two levels of the Arafel, the highest and the lowest. What is it telling me? It's telling me, number one, 
that you have to be able to study civil law in Judaism with a reverence. It's the word of God. It's the will of God. It's also telling me that when we study Hasidus, we have to engage intellectually the same way you do with the methodology of Talmud. Both halves. The highest and the lowest. The faith and the knowing. For a Jew to say, I believe in God, is not enough. A Jew has to be able to understand what do I believe in. What does it mean, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad? What is Hashem? What is Elokeinu? What is Hashem Echad? We need to understand this. We need to understand what does it mean? No question shouldn't be asked. In Chabad, we're not, oh, shh, you're not allowed to ask that question. Ask. I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. But one thing I can tell you, God won't become smaller when I don't have an answer. He won't become bigger when I do have an answer. As long as we understand the question is the mind, not God, we're doing okay. Ask away. Thus, people are like, you know, oh my God, Rabbi, I have a question for you. What's the question? I love the, the famous questions when they want to stump me. Can God create a rock he can't lift? Can God create another God? Can God kill himself? And these are the questions like, oh my God, Rabbi, you, you, uh, defeat? No, not defeat. Because if you're going to understand how God is, you're going to understand the answer to these questions. Let's talk about just for a moment, question number one. Can God create a rock that he doesn't exist? When God creates something, how does he create it? He went to Home Depot. Everything that exists is God and God is everything. So you're asking me if God can create a piece of himself that he can't lift. Let's go to question number two. Can God create another God? What would be the material, the mass of that other God? The first God. Because God is everything and everything is God. So if God created another God, that God is he. And he is he. So a lot of these questions, on the contrary, ask. Really ask. It doesn't mean we'll always have an answer. But it's our job to bring faith into knowledge. On the other hand, let's talk about the concept of, excuse me, let's talk about the concept of reverence. You're studying the Talmud, and they want to know, my cow was pregnant, and your ox gored my cow, and next to my dead cow is laying a dead uh, um, a ch child, a dead, a dead uh, baby cow. No, I'm saying that it died after your ox gored, so you have to pay me for the child too. You're telling me, no, the cow had a miscarriage before my ox hit it. So sorry, that baby's on you, the mother's on me. Is there any reason to wash your hands before you learn such a law? Is there any reason to shuckle when you learn such a law? It seems to me practical civil law. The answer is it's God's word. I want to share with you what happens when you do that. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. There's an unbelievable sikh from the Rebbe of Blessed Memory about the Ten Commandments. You're talking about a paradox. I am God, your God, don't kill. I mean, how do you put those two in the same set? Either you're here to give us the most spiritual stuff, God, lay it on, or you're here to teach me how not to be a creep. 
Which one is it? Don't covet. Don't have immoral sexual acts. Don't steal. Don't kill. And then on the other side, I am God, you God who took you out of Egypt, no idols and Shabbat and all the holy stuff. The Rebbe explains it exactly what we're talking about here. Hashem did that to tell us that the Ten Commandments is about the highest of the high and the lowest of the low, the lowest of the low and the highest of the high. Let's make sense out of this. God's telling you, I want you to understand what it means, I am God, your God, exactly the way you understand one should not murder. And I want you should not murder, be as divine as I am God, your God. What's the difference? The difference is very simple. If I am God, your God is something that we shuckle and we don't talk about, how is that faith in God going to stop me from sinning? It's so abstract. It belongs in the shul. It belongs in my Torah classes. Not in my bedroom, not in my kitchen, and not in my office, not in my vacation. So yeah, I love you God, but I'll be eating shrimp tonight. <laughs> or the other way around. If thou shall not kill is only moral, then the question of abortion and euthanasia is only one of morality. For the Jew, I am God, your God has to be logical. We need to be able to debate this and talk about this. And thou shall not kill is holy. I need to know what God has to say, not just what the human mind and, and the Supreme Court has to say. They both, they both have to coexist. Okay, in closing. In closing, I want to share where the ultimate source comes from. How is it that you and I can enter into the opaque darkness? And over here we're talking about opaque darkness as the highest of the high. Moshe Rabbeinu, the verse says that the people stood from afar. Moshe Rabbeinu drew near and went into the Arafel. Only Moshe, not you and me. So why are we now saying that all of us have to be able to connect with this? The answer is as follows. It tells us that first Moshe Rabbeinu was standing with everyone. And from there he went up the mountain. And he went into that Afel. This tells me that it's within the capacity to go from there to the highest. But the question now becomes, yeah, it's possible. For Moshe Rabbeinu, not for you and me. Just because Moses could doesn't mean I could. So there's an interesting uh, question in the Gemara and Brachas. The Talmud asks a question. Moshe Rabbeinu says, before he passed away in Deuteronomy, what is it that Hashem's already asking of you but to fear God? What's the big thing? You make it sound like it's so hard to be a Jew. It's not so hard. He's only asking for you one thing. Fear of heaven. So the Gemara asks a question. What are you kidding me? Fear of God is small? Fear of God is the hardest thing to do. The Gemara answers in Klapi Moshe, Milsa Zutrasihi. Yes, compared to Moshe Rabbeinu, it's small. And then Hanina gives an example. That which you have is easy. That which you don't have is not easy. For Moshe Rabbeinu, fearing God was easy. So he said, no, what is it already? Comes along the Alter Rebbe in chapter 42 in Tanya. He says, the Gemara didn't give a good answer. If Moshe Rabbeinu would say, what does God want from me? That's easy. But that's not what Moses said. Moses says, what does God want from you? 
So don't compare it to how easy it is for Moshe. You're talking to us. For us, that's hard. Now the Rebbe learns a pshat that's unbelievable. When the Gemara says, yes, for Moshe it's easy, he was not talking about the Gemara, Rabbi Hanina was not talking about the Moshe Rabbeinu that lived 3,000 years ago that was the son of Amram. He's talking about the Moshe that exists within each and every one of us. In each and every one of us there's a little Moshe Rabbeinu. What we call the Pintelayid. Now for that piece of Neshama, fearing God is the most natural, easiest flow of gravity. Let's take it a step further now. That means that within me there's a Moshe Rabbeinu, and within me there's the rest of the people. The rest of the people are staying far. The little Moshe within me is going up the mountain in Terafel. And what's he doing there? He's connecting the highest to the lowest. Thus, thanks to Moshe Rabbeinu, the Moshe Rabbeinu, who did it. Through that, he created that the little Moshe in each and every one of us does it. And through that, the rest of me can get on board. I can now understand that faith is not enough. I need to understand what I'm believing to the best of my capacity. And I also understand that don't steal and don't kill is not just moral. I once shared, Jewish people do not have humanitarian causes. We have divine causes. The reason why we save other people is because every human was made in God's image. Everything is reverence. Don't steal, don't kill. Keep normal laws. That to us is all kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad is not only kadosh, we have to be able to debate about this. We have to understand it, dissect it, question it. That's what going into the opaque darkness is all about. Bringing the ultimate opaque darkness into our opaque darkness so we can be one with Hashem. Thank you.